So are you still in hiding from the baguettes? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, have you been found? Have you been caught? I've been found a number of times. Oh. <laughs> my my resistance to the baguettes, and I hid well from... I'm still resisting them at breakfast because I feel three meals a day full of them would be very wrong. <laughs> but you just, you just can't. They are everywhere. I, I don't know if... Do you have strong willpower? Are you someone that could resist? It depends. Like, it's about the decision. If I decide... That okay, I'm not gonna eat bread or baguette, chocolate or anything. Yeah. Then yeah, my willpower is kind of fine, but I just yeah. I, I don't know. I just don't tend to care that much. I just <laughs> I'm just like meh. You know, like so pre-wedding last year <laughs> was kind of thinking. I kept saying like oh, I probably should just kind of you know try and eat a little bit healthily and stuff. I wasn't really that interested in changing myself at all. But then it came down to it. We're in the middle of Wimbledon. And I was like, wow, that muffin looks really good. I just, you know, <laughs> of course, I'm going to have cream on my strawberries. What do you, what do you expect? <laughs> and I just, it, I just didn't really care enough. But if I do care and I say kind of, no, 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 this is what I want to do, then yes, my willpower is fine. How about you? Yeah, I imagine you've got very, no, no, terrible willpower. I imagine you've got very strong willpower. I think it's just because I managed to get quite fit along with having coronavirus during lockdown that I wanted to kind of keep that momentum going and I've been doing really well. And then I arrived in the land of the baguettes and it's just it's just impossible. Someone um, from my other half's household will go to the boulangerie three times a day. Three times a day they will come back with baguettes. That's not normal, but it is normal. It is and normal. that's the problem. That's the thing. And then after being offered one again and again and saying no, you think, well, just a little bit would be fine. And they just have a little bit more. And maybe that would just complement what I'm eating there. So I'm I'm finding a lot of hills to run up, which there are in this part of France, just so I can have a baguette. <laughs> but yes, no, my willpower, my willpower is rubbish. Absolutely rubbish. So after my time out here, heaven knows what state I'm going to be in. But I, I, I succeeded in hiding from them for two days. Okay. Two How days. long are you out there for? A lot more than two days. <laughs> <laughs> enough enough time for it to make a lot of difference if I keep going the way I'm going <laughs> oh no well you know the the intention was there that's that's the main yeah thing. and as I say as long as I, I keep avoiding them at, at breakfast so basically that's the, the the main part of my day is still trying to avoid them but every time I'll, I'll check my phone and I'll get a message from you, you're having you're having a very different sort of day. And some would say a rather windy and cold few days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, quite unusual because commentary boxes, as I'm sure you agree, on the whole, if they're ever uncomfortable, tend to be very hot and stuffy. Yes. That's that's always the thing. And it's quite hard because the heat kind of makes you a bit sleepy and it, it can just be, a little, I don't know, it's just a bit, it's a bit annoying and you're trying to get a fan but then the fan makes noise and you can pick it up on the microphone so you have to turn the fan off and it's just, you don't get a breeze. We, <laughs> this time, they just stuck us outside. Just, we're not in a box. Although they keep referring to it as a box and I'm thinking, nah, it's more of a balcony. Um, and it just has been particularly windy. But I'm not going to, before anyone thinks that I'm actually complaining, I'm not. I would much rather be too cold than too hot. Oh, that's true. I was about to say you are complaining a little bit, but in terms of whether you'd rather be hot or cold, we should no, say. No, no, I'm stating. No, I'm stating the facts. I'm stating the facts. It is cold. It is windy. <laughs> it also rained on us sideways for the first day because all the tennis got moved inside. But because of the uh, COVID restrictions, 
there's just nowhere for us to go everywhere's full all of the rooms are being used so we just had to stay where we were which was on this rather open balcony so uh yeah so we are battling the elements but but now the sunshine's out and we're in a beautiful spot and it's just a little bit of wind for people thinking what on earth are you talking about you're at the national tennis center this is the Battle of the Brits, the mixed team event. And am I right in thinking that one day you nearly got blown off your chair while commentating? <laughs> it was very windy. <laughs> yeah, it, it has been exceptionally windy. Yesterday, it was tough. You know, when you're watching the tennis and it is very difficult for them, a lot of players bailing out of ball tosses and that sort of thing. But I mean, it's such a good event. It's so interesting. It's really, really good fun. I'm really enjoying the format. Uh, it's very, very busy. There's so much going on. I mean, we've got 13 players on each team. It's, a, it's an awful lot to keep track of. I'm kind of seeing players around and I feel like I don't even know which team you're on. I can't remember. <laughs> I haven't got it kind of memorized yet. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, so it's been it's been really good fun. It's, yeah, it's been organised by Jamie Murray. It's the Battle of the Brits mixed event, and it's just nice. I think it's a really nice team vibe. So we've got we've got singles, doubles, and mixed going on. And you've got Andy Murray taking part. Yes, and you've got Johanna Conter, who's the top British woman taking part. So it really has, and and just a bit like the Progress Tour, similar but different. I love the fact that, and there is that disparity in rankings in players in Great Britain, but you've got those top-ranked players who are either winning Grand Slams like Andy Murray or getting to finals of Grand Slams like Johanna Conta, but it goes all the way down to a number of the players that we were commentating on during the progress to So it's a real, it's a real mixed bag of, of talent that you've got. It is, actually. It, it's really nice. So we have the young up-and-comers, got very, very experienced players, as you were saying, uh, Conta and Murray, of course, leading the way with their experience and expertise. But everybody's really mucking in. I, I have to say, in terms of support, Dan Evans, just unbelievable. He's currently the British number one. He's a top 30 player. Um, and he is he's just been non-stop. He's, of course, had to play matches as well. Tough matches. He took a loss against Cam Norrie, the British <laughs> number three, but then he beat Kyle Edmund yesterday. Uh, and... He's been playing great. But I mean, his his support, I just don't know how he, he does it. He is there for every second and he is loud. He's on his feet the whole time. It is, I mean, he must be exhausted. We've got seven days of this, so I hope he's pacing himself. He might be vulnerable towards the back end of the week. But for me, he has been an absolute standout. Well, he's like a little Duracell bunny, isn't he? He's just got so much energy. But wasn't there a little controversial moment that happened at the end, I saw a lot of this on social media, at the end of his match with Kyle Edmund. Yeah, well, we didn't think it was that controversial in the end. I, I understand how it looked on TV. Okay, so talk, talk, us through, talk us through what happened and how you saw it. Well, it was a feisty match. It was a tight match. It was good fun. And of course, you've got a lot of noise from, from the teams because, as I say, they're big teams. There's a lot of people on the bench. It's almost kind of more than, say, Fed Cup, Davis Cup in terms of people getting involved courtside and it was pretty loud it was a big match it was the British number one against the British number two and Edmund was the British number two before Ed Evans was and you know all this sort of thing it's, it's you know it was there and we were all really looking forward to it and it was a really great match actually um, Evans played really well and at the end so they're obviously they're not shaking hands they're tapping rackets and they just do a little bump and it just Edmund just bumped Evans's racket a little bit hard <laughs> and uh, so after Evans won his celebration because his team were way down um, in terms of points each match okay. is worth a certain amount of points 1.2.3 points now this match was worth three points which is why we had the number one playing the number two because they wanted their best players out and 
as I say, Evans' team was down by an awful lot at this stage. And uh, he turned to his team and just did this kind of very in-your-face celebration, saying, yes, three points for the Union Jacks. And he was so pumped to try to have closed the gap a little bit. And, uh, yeah, so when they bumped rackets, Edmund, it just looked a little bit dismissive, like he kind of knocked Evans's racket out of the way. And then, and then what, what did Evans say? Something like, be careful, mate, be very careful. <laughs> we were all laughing because we were thinking, what's going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> nothing but I think it was much more honestly I, I really thought that like in at the time when Edmund did that it was much more sort of ah too good you know you know that was that was too good or whatever that sort of thing so I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on that one but it's good you need a bit of this that's what that's the point team events I think that Dan Evans would be able to get under most people's skin oh yes oh and he has been from the side of the court Absolutely. And also something you've talked about in the past, some people are more suited to team sports than others. And I'm not saying that Kyle Edmund isn't. We saw how he performed at the Davis Cup at the back end of last year. But some people, and you can see someone like a Dan Evans, Nick Kyrgios, Jack Sock, they thrive in a team atmosphere. They just love the banter. They love being on the sidelines. They love showing their support. It's just, it's just very different from person to person. Yes, and... Following on from our topic of last week, which we had lots of lovely questions in, but I would just say it is actually very different between the men and the women. The men typically tend to thrive well in team competitions. I think you, you do tend to get that sort of vibe. They like to support. They like to get involved. Uh, but the women, I, I think, struggle a little bit more with it. I did as a player, so I'm not criticising them in any way. It's just a particular sort of personality. And there's this whole thing about, uh, particularly in 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 British tennis, but I think globally that young girls, it's difficult to get young girls into the sport because they like to play team sports. And now there's absolutely something in that. There's plenty of evidence to support that. And it is a battle that tennis has to face at a young age is getting girls into um, tennis. So that's why I think that junior competition should all be team competition, really, when it comes to tennis. But particularly in Britain, uh, as a young sporty girl, you are so heavily encouraged into team sports. Netball and hockey are the two dominant sports in this country. Now football and cricket are also kind of really nudging their way to the top in terms of participation levels. And tennis isn't really that prevalent in school. So there's no tennis team in school, or very rarely. And it's, it's only done in the summer term, which is short. And it's, it's a real struggle for tennis to actually get into schools and be solidly there. So <laughs> the, the, the problem is, is that the girls that have ended up playing tennis uh, as, and are now doing it as a career have actively and deliberately <laughs> gone against team sports. So we just tend to be incredibly individual sort of people. And I very much remember myself making that conscious decision because I remember watching, I think I was watching somebody take penalties for us playing football. And I was thinking, this is crazy. How come how well I do is based on that person? This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I could have been rubbish for the whole match, but we still win and I get a medal and it's great. Or I could have been <laughs> unbelievable. I could have been the best player in the world and we still lose. So um, that just didn't sit well with me. So I do think that uh, and, and the, the guys don't necessarily have to fight against that so much. There are more individual sports kind of as an option. There are more sports as options, to be fair, for, for men in, in general and for boys when they're younger. 
but I do think it really is a, a deliberate choice from from the women to end up in in a sport like this. So bringing them together in a team can be challenging. And I know it will depend on the the character of the individual. And I might be wrong here, but I see Johanna Conte as as a bit of a as a bit of a lone ranger. And it could be partly her personality. I could be totally wrong. But I also think, and the more you succeed, the more you build a team or a bubble around you. So the higher you go chances are the bigger your team gets. And that team that you employ is there to tell you. Obviously, it's there to tell you when you're doing something wrong, but they're there to tell you. They're the, your cheerleaders. At one level, they're your cheerleaders. Yes. You're doing well. You're great. You can do this. You are the best. We are going to achieve this. And if you're spending the majority of your year, and then you add in family and friends who are pretty much going to say the same, I would hope that my mother would say the same rather than, gosh, you're rubbish at this. <laughs> do something else. Then all of a sudden, to be dropped into a team situation that we're not used to because we don't have really a lot of team competitions in tennis. That must be also quite hard because you just have people telling you great and then suddenly you're just one of a team. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, I mean, the team are pretty pretty good at, at getting on board. You do just get mainly positivity. But yeah, really interesting with Conta because, of course, in Fed Cup, we know that there's not a lot of chat between, say, her and the captain, Anne Kjothafong. She just likes to get on with things. She's just doing it herself. She'll let Anne know if she needs anything. Um, and that that's basically how it works. And it took Conta a little while, I think, to find her feet in Fed Cup. Um, but I think Anne's got a really good relationship with her and a good balance um, because ultimately it is just one person out on the court at any one time. So it's this weird sort of mix of individual performances contributing to a team score. So you're not all out on the court being a team at the same time. And Conta, well, unless Conta's obviously playing the doubles, that's slightly different. But so it is a bit of a different dynamic to say as I say netball hockey you're not kind of all in it together ultimately we talk about Fed Cup and we talk about the fact that Bolter won or lost her match and yes you have the overall tie but those things are also relevant and and get recorded so you do have to allow people to be the individuals that they are but yeah you know Conta that that's her thing and it's very much the same this week kind of just doing her own thing preparing for her matches she's played a couple um she took a bit of a stinging loss on the first match to uh to Jodie Burridge um which I think yeah would would not have gone down particularly well but I don't think Conta needs to be that hard on herself because she hasn't played at all that was her very very first match and Burridge, who's ranked about 280 at the moment, is playing way above her ranking. She's ready to go. She's played loads of tennis. She's playing really well. And it was a great match. Um, and it was just one of those things. But then she came back the next day, got a revenge. Well, not her revenge against Burridge, but she got a win against Bolter. So that was a good win for her. So it is difficult because everyone's at different stages. You've got some people who've played a lot, some people who've played a bit, some people who haven't played at all. Uh, so Heather Watson, for example... This was her first time out playing as well. She had a very tight match, uh, but she managed to come through. So, yeah, the, the team element, it's it's definitely challenging uh, when you're creating a team atmosphere, particularly for, say, Fed Cup and Davis Cup captains, because it's not a constant team through the year. You know, if you're a football manager, you can you create the culture and it's consistent week in, week out. These are the rules. These are what we hold everybody's standards to. I don't care if you're a superstar or you're a junior, like it doesn't matter what you are, this is what we're doing. But it's a little bit more difficult. You've, you've, you've got some but at egos the same to time, manage. Yeah, you, at the same time, surely you will look at or treat the world number five in your team differently to the world number 125 in your team because the, 100, the world number 125 in your team will probably be 
just very grateful that they are part of this team, whereas the world number five might have a different view as in you're very lucky to have me. I'm, I'm just generalising it, but you're very lucky to have me as part of your team. Well, I don't think you should really treat them that differently. You definitely would work with them differently, as in somebody lower down the rankings is going to need more help, more guidance. They don't have the experience. So yeah, you can allow somebody like Conta to get on with a lot of her own stuff on the court because she knows what she's doing. She doesn't need you to run around and say, right, you need physio, you need this, eat this banana, do this too. You know, she's got it all covered. Whereas with the youngsters, you know, sometimes they can get a little bit overwhelmed with that stuff. So in terms of the guidance, it would be different and the information you're relaying. But in terms of the standards expected and the rules that, that go with the culture of being a team, I think they should just be the same across the board. This is the interesting part. Have you got any gossip for us? Have you spoken oh. to you are there <laughs> at the National Tennis Centre? When you're not being blown off your chair in your in your outdoor commentary box, what what can you what bits can you bring us? Oh, it's all kicking off. Well, I'll tell you what, three Murrays on one team. <laughs> Jamie, Andy and Judy. And I have been told that Jamie just picked the teams. It was just because he's running the event. He just decided it wasn't out of a hat. He just tried to balance the team. Oh, really? Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so I think just to keep the family peace, he <laughs> kept the Murrays all together so that they <laughs> weren't getting two in each other's faces. Because can you imagine the heckling two brothers playing against each other? Imagine Andy at the side <laughs> of the court. Um, so yeah, so that that's all been fine. But I think they've been they've been doing all right. But no, it's been nice. I've been managing to chat to. A lot of people chatting to Andy. He seems in good spirits. Now, Andy Murray is only playing doubles this week. That's what he stated. Okay. Doesn't want to play okay. singles because of the hip. And when he played Battle of the Brits a few weeks ago, the singles event, he played. He had a lot of time on court, a lot of hours on court. His hip was bothering him, but it wasn't hindering him. It was just there. So, look, he could still change his mind. He could say tomorrow, I mean, we've got seven days. We're only on day three today. He could change his mind and say, actually, I'm feeling quite good. Put me in for a singles. But so far, we've only seen him play a mixed doubles last night, which he did lose on a final set breaker. Um, but that was really good fun. Um, so, yes, when it comes to Andy Murray, he seems kind of fit and healthy and fresh. Very keen to go to Cincinnati and US Open. Well, Cincinnati in New York. And I'm still calling it Cincinnati because, I mean, what else do you call it? But it is it is Cincinnati. But it's, what else? It's quite a long way away from Cincinnati, though. <laughs> it's, it's Cincinnati in the US Open bubble. But it just maybe it just has a really long name. It's like when you go on those um, if you go on like a cheap flight and they say yes, this is to Stockholm, but it's like three hours outside of Stockholm. It's really <laughs> far. It's called Stockholm, but it's really not. But what what else do you call it? You have to call it Cincinnati. Yeah, it's Cincinnati. And it's interesting. Andy Murray had stated that he's going to go, and there was talk he might take a a wild card into qualifying just to get more matches. And I think, hasn't Johanna Conta said that she plans to be part of that bubble and to take part? But they have, the deadline for Cincinnati is now passed and there have been a number of players that have just made the decision that it's not going to be something they do. And I think people might say, well, what does that matter? Because the deadline for the US Open is what, as we record this, it's August, it's a, it's a couple of days away. And people are thinking, well, hang on, if they're not playing Cincinnati, what are the chances that they then don't go to the US Open? Well, I think that it definitely increases the chances that they're planning on not going to the US Open because there isn't any option to kind of see how Cincinnati runs and then go to the US Open and think, okay, right, that looks like it's manageable. It's coming across quite well. I actually feel more comfortable with it, which 
to be honest, I think quite a few players would quite like, they'd quite like to see an event happening, see how it works, just if they're a bit uncomfortable with the situation. But there's no way they can do that because they've got to get there and quarantine and be part of the bubble and, and that sort of thing. So um, they and Cincinnati's just the week before, it's, it's right before. So it means that if they're not going to Cincinnati, it would be kind of strange if they were nursing an injury and they thought, oh, I just need one more week because... It's been months. <laughs> it's, been, <laughs> it's been so long. So, yes, I do think... I don't think it means that they will not play the US Open. It just makes it less likely. They're, they're definitely candidates that are not keen on going to US Open. Because only five of the top ten players in the WTA Tour have entered Cincinnati. Missing are Bianca Andreescu, Naomi Osaka, world number one Ash Barty, world number two Simona Halep, and Alina Svitolina stated a while ago that she will she will start things on the clay. And another absentee will be Angelique Kerber. A lot more of the men have committed to Cincinnati. We know that there's no Roger Federer, but we've known that for a while. Fabio Fanini is recovering from ankle surgery, and that we know Gail Monfils is the other top ten player. Then no Songa or Stan Wawrinka. So it's still a pretty good turnout. But I was thinking about Simona Halep, who who pulled out of. Palermo due to safety concerns and you cannot judge anybody during what we're going through for having safety concerns and not wanting to make a journey and not wanting to put themselves at risk because the virus is is still very much out there but it was the fallout from the statement issued by the tournament and I'm pretty sure it's just a lost in translation it was directly translated and it came out but a couple of the lines from the statement which were pretty strong um, we found out with great bitterness <laughs> that Simona Hallett would not be playing and we are embittered and profoundly <laughs> disappointed. I mean, this is strong, strong language, but I'm sure someone just literally translated and it just came out a little bit wrong. Have we actually found out whether that was the case? Because people were saying that originally because it, it did seem a bit out of place. Do we know whether it was tran- the bad translation? Well, I think... A few people have said that literally the direct translation from one word to another would come out as bitterness or embittered. And I, and I have that with French and English. I mean, the, the French can take so long to say something that is actually a very short <laughs> sentence in English, you know, and it, and, it, and it can be quite flowery and quite poetic. And you think, what earth is going on here when it's actually a very tiny, no, I'm not coming. And you're like, well, why didn't you just say that? It went on for ages. So I, I, I do, I do believe. But, but anyway, it's just, just strong. I remember reading that, thinking, look, I, I know they're upset that they don't have Simona, but that's, that's pretty, that's pretty strong. But again, the times that we're living in at the moment, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah, it is. And Halep has always been somebody who's been very cautious. She didn't go to Rio because of the, the Zika virus. And and it, I would be surprised if she was one of the ones saying, ah, it's fine. Let's go. Let's give it a, give it a, give it a crack. And I'm, look, there'll be lots of players who will be keen to get on the road um, and trust the tournaments to do it in a safe manner. That Because that's ultimately a thing. You have to trust that things will be controlled in in the right way definitely i think looking at the u.s open and cincinnati now before seeing as it's at the site of the u.s open the one thing they really have over every other tournament is space because they're not gonna have any crowd they have so much space all of the all of the the restaurants and the areas where people would be eating or sitting they, they could put tents up they could have little bubbles so they definitely have that working to their advantage but we were chatting this week i've been chatting a lot with some of the players 
about the US Open, everybody's saying, do you think it will happen? That is the number one question on everybody's lips. And a little bit like last week with Washington, by the time people listen to this, we will probably have an answer as to what's happening because I believe it's expected this week, end of July, beginning of August, to know what is happening with the deadline for entries for the US Open being being the third. And I should say, with regards to Washington, if people, a really interesting podcast is the No Challenges Remaining podcast that Ben Rothenberg did with the, the owner of Washington, Mark Ein. It was really, really interesting as to why they couldn't do it. And it was pretty much, they had everything in place, but it was the travel restrictions. And it came down, it came from the government. They had everything in place. They'd obviously moved the women's tournaments. It was just the men, less people on site. But it got to the point where not enough people could get there, could get there safely. And and that was really what Washington came down to. But I think the thing about the US Open, they've got the space, but it's it's about trusting the players when they leave site to literally, and as boring as it will be, just to go back to where you're staying. I mean, that's the big thing, isn't it? it it's going to be pretty dull. I was uh, chatting to Colin Beecher and, and Carl Edmund, and they were saying that the hotel has moved and the hotel is not uh, a great uh, excitement for players who are used to staying in big fancy <laughs> hotels in Manhattan. I think it's in the middle of um, nowhere. <laughs> that's that's how it was phrased to me anyway. Uh, and there's not an awful lot to do. So I think the tournament are going to be looking at putting on a lot of sort of entertainment and food and, and that almost bring Manhattan to the the hotel and that sort of thing and try and keep them occupied so that they don't have they don't leave because otherwise they'll feel like they're in prison but um yes what I was going to say before was that uh everybody was just kind of talking about I mean imagine if this is the first time you win a grand slam whether you're one of whether you're on the WTA side or maybe this is the first time that team finally breaks through he finally does it he gets there or Medvedev gets there or whoever it is and you're in Arthur Ashe the biggest stadium we've got <laughs> there's no one there <laughs> and then in your box there's only two people I was thinking they should do what they do with the football um where what have they been doing Gigi? they've got like they've got screens haven't they of fans you could have sort of like dominic team's family at home just on this big screen just, just cheering and in football they've been piping crowd noise in you can listen to commentary with or without the crowd noise there's been cardboard cutouts in some bundesliga match that were put in there i was actually talking about this with someone yesterday because if it goes ahead i'll be commentating on it from the uk but radio commentary without any fans I mean, that's that's a very strange that's thought. Hard. A, well, A, it means there's no room to breathe at all because if there's a big moment, the, there's no crowd. There will just be silence. Uh, so A, it's it's how that will come across. But it's going to be very strange. As you mentioned, it, it doesn't get any bigger than Arthur Ashe. And you've got this great match. And I was I was talking, would it be possible to bring effects in? And the, the person I was talking to said, it's just football, it can be... They pretty much have a DJ, you know, when there's there's a goal, there's a yeah. noise. They're very a, good. But, They're quite on it. But, but tennis, I, I just, it's just difficult. It's I just, I just think it would be impossible to do that with tennis. Absolutely impossible. Yes, uh, I think it'd be too difficult because it has to be on and off. And I don't think it's a problem, honestly. I think for tennis players, they're used to all of the action happening with no noise. So that's fine. And as we were saying a few weeks ago, if you just happen to be scheduled after Roger Federer, it doesn't matter who you are, but you're getting a quiet crowd (laughs) for your first set. If you're on sort of late lunchtime-ish in Paris (laughs) and Rafa's just one love, two and love, you're going to be getting a quiet crowd. Like, you know... And if you're any 
anything but the top 20, you're on the outside course and you're going to play plenty of matches with not many people watching anyway. And that's whether they're at slams or in in smaller events through the year. So I think there's definitely different to say footballers who are kind of used to 50,000 people as like a standard sort of situation yeah. and it, it just gets a nice boost if they go to Wembley and it's 90,000 <laughs> instead <laughs> of the normal so to go down to zero I can imagine that is actually quite an effect on them and also because of the fact that it's a constant noise that it, it's there through the action um, and obviously now there's nothing um, must definitely feel like a, a massive difference but yeah for something like like tennis I don't think it will have that much of an impact apart from the winning moment it will be so sad imagine you think about somebody who's won one grand slam imagine if that's Ostapenko's grand slam win or Del Potro's grand slam win and that's it and you look around you're thanking the crowd oh no then you have the crowd noise you have some crowd noise for the winning moment so that the winning shot whatever happens they raise their arms aloft they are the 2020 US Open champion you pipe some noise in you pipe in cheers. It's still going to be right? weird. There's no it's one still, to look, see it's, it. It's going to be weird anyway, but you'll have sort of your, your tiny, tiny, tiny team <laughs> with you like in the box. Two people. What are you allowed tiny, to do? Three. 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 So <laughs> you have your... And, and I'm sure at you that should point, just go around and just grab some lines people who are not doing anything. Just come sit. <laughs> come and sit. Well, I'm sure the, maybe the other members of the other person's team might clap at that point because you want it. Okay, still six people is not going to make a whole lot of noise. <laughs> six people <laughs> clapping. Maybe maybe as you do your lap of honour. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, so and there's sad. no media on site for the US Open, so there'll probably be... I imagine one or two photographers. Someone said something that normally they're they're in the thousands in terms of applications for media, but it's literally maybe a hundred or two hundred media within the whole site because again they're keeping even USTA employees will only be on site if it's absolutely necessary. So you know that they pull up that rope and there's the bank of photographers all sort of standing on each other's shoulders to try and get that photo. There might be two. <laughs> Just getting the photos. Oh dear! Oh, it's well, you know, at least, look, at least they get to play because we didn't get to play Wimbledon, so it's yeah. definitely if, if better it happens, yeah. to play yeah. than not play. But and, it, and uh, a great opportunity for some of these players to maybe win for maybe Serena Williams to equal the record. Yeah, but this is the thing. Like, I kind of hope. I know this is bad, and I'm not biased in any way, but I kind of hope that it's somebody who's won Grand Slams before who gets to win it because you don't want that, it to be their first memory. I just, of, oh. No, because you never know. That might be the only one you win. But a grand, yeah, but you're still going to be US Open champion 2020, whether there's people there or not. And with that comes endorsements, a change of life, uh, financial changes. So if you said to said player, um, you know, would you win this with no crowd or would you want to wait till there was a crowd? A chance to win a grand slam. You just take it. No, I, I get that life-changing life-changing i'm not saying it's not going to be life-changing to someone who's won three or four grand slams is it? it's just another one well that's what but i life mean changing. But that's what I, I just know you know what i'm trying to say look it's not <laughs> like say if joe conta reaches the final she's going to go Do you know what? actually i don't want to win this one it's fine you can have it's, it's fine you can have it i'll try for the next one of course she's going to be desperate to try and win but i'm just saying that it would i would prefer it if it worked out that it was kind of the people who have won slams before. Right, the difference between men and women's tennis because we had a great reaction. I'm just worried that we'll get to the end of the podcast and we haven't <laughs> done it. Um, we got 
really lovely reaction. Becca Smith sent us a message via Instagram to say she finds it really interesting. And could we talk more about the differences between men's and women's tennis? Margie said she'd love to hear Naomi talk more about differences between men's and, and women's tennis. So we will get to the we will get to your questions. And Misa from Los Angeles, who emailed us via the website, we want to spend a little bit more time on your questions. So we're going to do that another time, if that's okay. But a couple of questions. One was from Glynn on Twitter. And I have to say, he was he, started, he was pretty rude. The first part, I was thinking, oh, it was, it was pretty rude when it came to the serve in women's tennis. I mean, he was pretty rude. He just said, there's no plan. There's no direction. Get it in the box. And that's it. And at first I was thinking, well, where are you headed with this? But the back end of it, he said, is it lazy coaching in terms of they don't focus on the serve because they necessarily don't need the serve to win? And is it the fact that no one wants to sacrifice current results for long term gain, which I find a little bit more interesting? Uh, Actually, it's an awful lot of small reasons that kind of get put together. And I mean, one big reason as to why the women's service is generally weaker. We talked about the upper body strength last week. That is a huge factor. That's probably the biggest factor. The height, because just not as tall, and the upper body strength. That I'm saying that is the bulk of the reason as to why there is a difference. However, we also have a situation where girls, when they're younger, they just don't do sort of overarm throwing so much. They don't really necessarily do that in sort of the sports that they're playing. Uh, And actually that filters into the men's tennis when it comes to British sport, because we don't have many overarm sports that are big. Okay, if you're in the outfield in cricket, but other than that, you're not using that throwing motion all the time. The Americans, I mean, what's a typical American? Big serve, big forehand, right? That's that. That's stereotypical, yep. very generic, probably yep. a bit rude. I'm not trying to be rude. I feel like it's very complimentary. But a lot of their sports are the overarm throwing baseball, American football. They go to a park, they throw that ball around all the time when they're kids. It's just a big part of their culture. So what, once they decide on the sport they're going to actually stick to, which is tennis at about 10 or 12 years old, they've done a lot of that work, which doesn't get done necessarily in Britain so much and actually even in Europe there's a lot of handball that's very popular that's oh, over throwing again absolutely huge handball yeah we don't do that in Britain as well so actually we're at a disadvantage for both men and women but in general women do a lot less overarm throwing when it comes to just being a kid and developing those muscles um what else was the question well I, I think this applies oh, the coaching and I think it applies to both men and and women, because with tennis, it's it's like you're a hamster on a wheel. It never lets up. There's always a tournament. You're always defending points or you're always trying to get better points to go higher up the rankings. So if you're going to change something like your serve, make massive adjustments, surely you are going to have to take a hit on results and points. And I imagine that's quite a hard thing to do because you probably will have to drop down to come back up again. Yes. Uh, so that is something that no player wants to do, especially once you get there. Problem is, is that we have these rolling rankings from a really young age. I mean, we've got um, under 18s, of course, the juniors. But before that, we've got under 14s, under 12s in tennis Europe. And players are kind of, they're already on the treadmill of trying to pick up points, defend their tournaments, get their ranking higher because it means they'll get into this tournament and that tournament. And it's not that they should ignore that. You should never ignore it. You need to learn to compete. And actually, as I say, if you win something like Tarbs, you do get more opportunities to then go on and, and, and play other tournaments. If you win a junior Grand Slam, you get 
if you finish in the top 10 in the juniors, you get more spots, you get junior exempts into challenger events so you can move quicker up the rankings. But it does have to be managed. Sometimes players are not ready. And there is, it's all about the, the team that you have and the trust that the player has in the team. And, and this really comes in from a young age. So something like Felix Auger-Aliassime absolutely nailed it. When he very, when he, the first year that he was in qualifying for the Australian Open, his first ever Grand Slam, he was in the top 200. He was in that tournament. If you can imagine that, very young. I think he was about 17. Does that sound about right? Something like that. Yep. Something like that. Anyway, he was young. I mean, how excited must he have been for that? Uh, and of course, Australian Open coming off the back of the short off-season we have. And his team said... He's not ready. He's not ready physically for best of five sets because that's what you're doing when you're signing up for that slam. And he didn't go. He didn't play. He went and played some challenges in the States instead. Now, that actually hasn't hindered him at all. That has helped his development. But that is a tough decision to make. I personally couldn't think of anyone, particularly in British tennis, who would dare make that decision. And if they did make that decision, they would, they would have a lot of stick, I think, from a lot of people saying, this is an amazing opportunity. What are you doing? As, as long, like, even if you're maybe a little bit injured, they'd probably be saying, as long as you can play, go play. Come on, you, you, know, you need these experiences. But it's about having that belief in the talent that you've got, being able to take the time that you need to develop. And there are players that are able to do that at certain stages. I remember Daria Kazakina. I played against her in a challenger. She won it easy. Oh, gosh, she destroyed me. It was on clay, so give me a break. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but for Dasha, um, it was the same thing. You know, it was very much... After that, I, I was thinking, why isn't she playing tour events? And I, and I was chatting to her coach at the time, and he was saying, her game is ready, her body is ready, but her mind is not. We're just going to wait a few months. She needs to mature. She needs to understand the pressures. She was still very young, again, a teenager. So if you're around those sorts of people, then I think you have that long-term goals and targets that, that's already in your mind. Um, but if you are with people that are being judged on whether you win right now, then that's a, a real a real problem. And then the last thing just to throw into the mix is we have a very short off season. You can't get a lot done. So you have to yeah. take time out of competition. Whereas in other sports, it's much longer. You get months to try and change things, adapt things. So it, it does become quite difficult and coaches need to make tough calls. There's a question from Mac that I know that you were really interested in, in talking about, came through on Twitter again, wants to hear more about women's tennis. Could you tell us your view on the evolution of the surfaces, especially slower hard courts and the impact on the players? Well, I know what you're asking and I'm going to answer a dis different question. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Mac. Am I apologising <laughs> for you again? Sorry. <laughs> this is my podcast. Oh, it's our podcast. Sorry. This is my, my answer. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> no, I didn't mean it like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> to be fair, it was your idea. So it was definitely more yours than it's mine. <laughs> But, um, You've changed. I haven't seen you for a while. Oh, You've changed. It's, it's only awful. been two weeks. What's happened? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, when it comes to the surfaces, the, the evolution of the surfaces and how that's changed over time, I think that has been talked about a lot and how it's impacted the game. We have far more baseline rallies across both men's and women's now. It, the, the courts are a lot slower. Uh, it means there's more... Um, you need to be physically in better shape, longer rallies. It's it's definitely harder on the body. 
Um, specifically looking, though, because we were talking last week about the difference between men's and women's tennis, this is another contributing factor to the way that women play because the WTA Tour, the average um, court speed for the WTA Tour versus the ATP Tour, dramatically different. It's way, way quicker on the WTA Tour. Now, I know what you're thinking. They play a lot of the time on the same courts and they're not that different. But the men essentially have an entire clay court season throughout the whole year it's just going and going and going uh which the women don't the women have a very small clay court season and clay is of course the, the, the shortest surface um there are a couple of tournaments thrown here and there but for the guys you could be ranked 60 in the world and pretty much play on clay apart from the slams uh if if you wanted to that it's quite relentless I'm talking about the regular season here of course <laughs> slightly <laughs> different times at the moment um, but in general, so of course, you've got the South America swing, there's, there's all sorts going on. So it means that there's a lot, there's a lot more payout for the guys to play tennis that suits a slower surface. So I know people talk about Wimbledon and they say, oh, well, the grass has slowed down. So the game has slowed, slowed down uh, dramatically. And now there's much more baseline tennis than there are serve volleyers. Yes, that's true. The grass has slowed down. We've seen all of the evidence. But also, there are so many clay court tournaments through the year. You have to be good on clay and hard and on the slower surfaces if you want to be uh, an ATP professional. They have a very short amount of tournaments on quick surfaces. Really, and when I say quick, I mean quick. You've got the grass, which is it has been slowing down, and you've got Paris. Is there anything else I'm missing? Maybe the O2, but that's not Poss- really a tournament. Yeah, possibly, that's, that's but not for... really. I think they're the main ones. Exactly. And then, you know, Milan, that's an exhibition. Whereas for the women, there's a, there are a huge amount of quick surfaces throughout the year. More indoor events as well. And then um, just in general, the, the, those surfaces do tend to be a little bit quicker. So it just totally changes the game. Um, you're not going to play. You're not going to play with the field. You're not going to play as many drop shots. You're not going to come to the net as much because you don't have as much time. But then Mac referenced the WTA finals in in Shenzhen and it could have just been that it was the end of the season and so players are more susceptible to injuries, but it was quite noticeable how many players had to withdraw and the surface was talked about due to injury. Yeah, it was really slow Uh, and it it was very gritty as well, which... That's what makes an acrylic court slow is the the sand content in the top surface. The more sand content you've got, the more it grips the ball because the more friction there is and the more it slows everything down. But also what people don't realize is that puts a lot more friction through your legs when you're moving. It's a lot more impact because people kind of slide around on the hard a little bit. Your foot moves underneath you, even when it's not necessarily a noticeable slide your foot is moving and if that is real intense friction with that sand put into cement that shock through your leg is really really tough it's very very difficult on the back um it's a it's a horrible surface to to play on really so i wasn't surprised at all when we found out that it was that slow and that gritty um and obviously the slicker it is the smoother it is the easier it is to move but and you'll get shorter rallies so it's the combination of longer rallies, harder work trying to hit through the ball because the ball's going slower and the ball's roughing up a lot because the surface is rough. And also you're getting battered all the t- every time you slam on the brakes. So it's kind of going through the body. So that's why we got so many injuries there. But 
you know, when it comes to, again, the differences between men's and women's tennis, I think it's, it, there's a lot less benefit to being a good clay quarter when it comes to women's tennis than there is in the men's side of things. You know, Rafa has really translated his clay court tennis well and have to give credit to Simona Halep. She's done a fantastic job. But, you know, it, it's taken a very long time. It is quite difficult. And we've seen a lot at Roland Garros, we've seen a lot of winners who aren't clay quarters. I mean, Sharapova, you know, she's won it more than once. <laughs> it's, it, you know, and, and that is, you know, Ash Barty said last year she still doesn't even really like the clay. She just <laughs> hates it less. <laughs> so, you know, that that's all that all plays into it. But actually, when you look at season overall, it makes a big difference. And now this is a real problem for juniors. And I know that we need to finish soon, but I'll just put in this last thing. It's a real problem for juniors because every junior event is boys and girls. So the, the schedule is identical um, for under 18s. And the schedule very much mirrors what would happen on the ATP tour. It does not mirror what happens on the WTA tour. There are an awful lot of clay court events when it comes to the juniors. Uh, a, a huge amount, very slow surfaces in general. And that is why we get, a. it's one of the reasons why we get an awful lot of girls who are very, very good and can't translate onto the WTA tour. We get an awful lot of players like a Muguruza, not so good at juniors, but then storms it when she gets to the, the slams because she plays a big hitting, faster court game. Uh, I know she won Roland Garros, of course, but she still played in, in that yeah. fashion. And so you can kind of break through. Um, so that's a real struggle for girls who are developing because if you overcompete, it can be really difficult because you played on slow surfaces and on clay. And then actually for a large chunk of the clay court season, or not a large chunk, we've got Charleston, but you've got gray clay as well, which is much quicker. So as I say, there are lots of different factors that go into it, but it's, um, yeah, you, but this is why if you want to navigate this stuff, you want to be a professional, you have to work with people who have done it or been there. They know, and they understand the differences and how to schedule. You would schedule what a boy is doing in comparison to a girl totally differently. We do really appreciate all the questions that have that have come in on this. And there was a piece that you recommended and you tweeted about for the New York Times, which is where are all the women coaches. And that's something probably next week I want to talk about how we get, how you get, how you could get more into coaching women, how we get more women coaches into tennis. I just think it's a really interesting subject. The fact that the there aren't any, it doesn't seem they're going to be that many anytime soon. If people have got other questions, Emily, actually, remember a couple of podcasts ago, we were talking about disembarking from planes or deplaning. Deplaning. Yeah, the, the Americans never, deplane. I've never heard of deplane. Um, Emily sent us a message on Instagram in support of the word deplaning. She actually took a screenshot of an email from American Airlines <laughs> and highlighted deplaning. She said it is commonly used in the US. I just, oh, I've just, there we go. I've just never heard it. I don't even think I heard dis- just get off the plane. I still, yeah, I don't know. They don't but, tell you to get off. How rude is that? Well, they don't really tell you anything, do they? They, they just say you land America, and the doors open. Basically, but Emily, I want to ask you: Do they ask you to plane? What? Because we have boarding and then we have disembarking. That's what happens in Britain and in most places. But in the states, if you're deplaning, do you plane to get on it? No. I don't understand. No. What happens? How do you get on the plane? I get boarding, and I hear boarding, and I see it on signs. When the plane lands, 
and it stops. The little seatbelt sign switches off. Everybody stands up. That's it. There's no disembarking talked about or deplaning. The seatbelt sign goes off. Everyone stands up, right? No, I don't yes. believe you. Do you sit in your seat until someone comes across the intercom and tells you to disembark? No, you don't. Well, then they turn off the seatbelt sign. And you and stand then... up. Oh, and you stand up. I don't know. Okay, you, we could talk about this for ages. <laughs> <laughs> right, you have got... It's it's nearly lunchtime here, so I'm just going to go and eat baguettes. <laughs> I'm just not Enjoy even gonna, baguettes. I'm just not even going to pretend not to. Um, and next week I have to tell you about the 2019 Wimbledon men's final that I was talking about yesterday. Wait, what? I know it's happened. What is it? It's in like something. <laughs> Did I miss something? <laughs> There's something about it that I'm going to tell you about next week. Okay. Oh, what? That it was very good. It was very good. <laughs> <laughs> That's for next week. You've got to go off to the Battle of Britain now. Yes. And I've got to go off and eat. I've got to... <laughs> the Battle of Britain. <laughs> and I've got to... and I've got that to is go an entirely <laughs> different thing. And I've got oh, to go off and eat right. bread. Bye. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,